Well, good morning once again. It's good to be back together and great privilege to be able to come to a place and read the Bible. Um, and it's great just to be able to read. It makes me think of my trips to the eye doctor throughout my life. I think it was about eighth grade I was sitting at, the, at my desk and realized I couldn't read what the teacher was writing on the blackboard. So I realized, well, I need glasses. So, And as an eighth grade boy, you, you just imagine how horrifying that is to be able to have to go to your folks and, and uh, realize that you have to have glasses. So I went, and the first time you put glasses on, it's just all of a sudden like you, you realize, wow, trees have leaves. It's marvelous. So I was fine from that point on. It's much better to see and uh, wear frames than to uh, not see and look cool. Well, all throughout life, um, annually or every couple of years, however often you go to get your prescription updated, you go to the optometrist, and up until recently anyway, uh, an optometrist visit was second only to a dental scraping. Being able to being able to sit in or having to sit in uh, that that chair, you, if you've have lenses of any kind or if you've been to the optometrist, you realize what happens. You remember what happens. They've got something new now where you don't have to do that. But many years past, you would have to sit in that chair and they'd clamp your head down. Remember? They'd clamp your head in this thing and then they say, "Open your eyes up real big." And then they stick this thing right in front of your pupil and tell you, now, don't move. You ready? And then, pow, this blast of air goes in your eye. And you know it's coming, but your whole body still jerks anyway. It's like when the doctor (laughs) hits you on the knee and your knee pops up. You feel like an idiot, you know, because you don't have any control over it. And then they do the other eye. And the same thing happens. Pow! And you you jerk. And I'm told that this is necessary to test the pressure or something in your eye to get something just right. And I don't know. I think the optometrist just does it because <laughs> he can get away with it and likes to watch you jump. But it's essential, or at least it was essential. There's a more updated process now to where the pow in the eye doesn't have to happen. But there's it's essential because it gives us clarity of vision, that kind of testing of your eye pressure or uh, whatever its purpose is, is to uh, provide a test so that your vision can be all that it can be or all that it needs to be. And I, you know, when that happens every year, you begin to think, especially when you're teaching on a regular basis, your, your antenna is always up for illustrations. And I thought that is exactly what we deal with in our relationship with God. Because the Lord does a similar thing with the vision that he gives us through the Scripture. We read the Bible, and it is full of wonderful promises, great promises. And then all of a sudden, pow, your whole frame of reference is shaken by a, a test or a trial that the Lord allows you to go through. Um, When trials come, we pray to the Lord to bring relief. We pray for change. We ask him to be merciful and to to make the situation, the painful situation, go away. 
But, you know, if you think about it, what it whenever we ask God to bring about a change, even if it's a good thing, even if it's healing, or even if it's conversion, or a, a painful situation of that requires reconciliation, and yet God says no, or God says wait, whatever we're asking, we have to realize that we're always asking from a limited perspective. We see what we see. We don't see what God sees. We see the next domino or two that will fall. God sees the next 10 million. We see the red light in front of us. God sees the red lights of the next century. And somehow in his great grand sovereign plan, he says no to our very good prayer requests sometimes because he sees the bigger picture. And sometimes it isn't just whatever's going to happen across town or in the next century, but sometimes it's a matter of character in our own lives that the Lord doesn't just give us an immediate answer to our prayer, but lets us squirm, lets us have vision that is less than clear so that when it does, so that it is clarified through the process of struggle and trust and dependence and humility as opposed to just simply asking God and he gives us what we're looking for. God wants to give us much, much more, I'm convinced, than the simple answers to our prayers. Let's look together at the book of 1 Peter, chapter 4. 1 Peter 4. I've only got a few more, a couple more messages after this. We'll finish chapter 4 today, and then the next couple of weeks we'll be looking at chapter 5, and then we're done with First Peter. What a great book. What a great, great book. So far in this book, Peter has been writing to believers who are trying to live out their faith in a culture hostile to their faith, very much like ours. Didn't used to be that way here in the United States, but more and more it's becoming that way. It's becoming the kind of a culture in a similar way to what Peter was writing to, to those who resided, as he says in chapter 1, as aliens. But he's told them to keep an eternal perspective. Uh, this is essential. If you're going to have joy in, in spite of your trials, the only way to do it is to have a perspective that looks beyond the trials. It's not that you're not looking at reality. It's not that you're not um, being honest about the facts. But it's that you're honest with all the facts. You notice when you, when you look at the news, it's usually just bad news because that's what get, gets your attention. Uh, I have a friend who's a photographer, and he's, in fact, he does our, all our videoing for the website. And he says, reporters love fire. And literally, both literally and uh, uh, metaphorically, they love crisis because crisis gets your attention and crisis ranks the ratings. But it isn't all of reality. At the same time that you see of a, of a, a horrible accident or some horrible tragedy that occurred, there's all kinds of wonderful acts of graciousness and faithfulness, and grace, and kindness that's happening all across our country as well, as well as our own city. 
but that doesn't make the news. It's the same way when we look at the trials in our lives. Even though what gets most of our attention is the fire, we need to remember that there are facts that go beyond the facts that are screaming right in front of us. Peter demands, Peter urges us to keep this in mind, to keep an eternal perspective. And he tells us to focus on a couple of things, God's word, because he says, by it you will grow in respect to salvation, by the word of God, by our commitment to the Bible, and God's word and God's people. And since we are aliens and strangers in the world, our behavior, Peter says, is to reflect that. We're to, we're to have in three different realms, particularly so far he's mentioned, he'll mention another one we'll look at next time, but three different realms, the government, uh, in the home, and uh, on the job, we submit to authority, even if that authority isn't following God, because it honors God. And regardless of the unjust realm that we struggle in, we should, have a, we should always be ready with, an, with, a, with a message, an ever-ready message for anybody who asks us for the hope that we have. And that message, of course, is that Jesus not only died on the cross for our sins, but he's also coming again for us. Well, let's, today we're going to look at a deeper context of struggle, and I think probably of all the messages of all of the sections or the verses in 1 Peter, this portion of 1 Peter 4, starting in verse 12, is one of the most fiery, you might say, if we think of our news metaphor. It's a metaphor that Peter also uses. It's one of the most difficult how do we live out our faith when we personally are deeply hurting? Now look at verse 12. Peter writes, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you, which comes upon you for your testing, as though some strange thing were happening to you. Don't be surprised, he says. Someone once asked the late R.C. Sproul, why do bad things happen to good people? And I love his answer. He says, I don't know. I haven't met any good people yet. <laughs> what a great, great response. Well, that's a bit snarky, but the, the real question is, why do, bad, why do bad things happen when we're trying to do good? When, when, in all things considered, you've got somebody that's trying to lead a good life, why do they have so much struggle? Some of the things I think that give us the greatest disappointment in life come from expectations. Um, one of the uh, one of our I meet with a group of men every Saturday morning, and we've met together in our neighborhood for good grief, I guess, about eleven or twelve years now. Every Saturday morning, several about nine of the men in the neighborhood we get together for for prayer. We read the Bible accountability it's it's a great uh, it's a great time and uh, one of the guys he's got kind of this mantra that he says uh, he almost once a month now for about 11 years he said it <laughs> but he says uh, expectations are just planned disappointments and i read about what paul uh, what peter writes here and uh, those words come to mind. Don't be surprised at the fiery ordeal that comes upon you for your testing as though something strange is happening. The trials that we go through in our Christian life are supposed to happen. 
It is a sad, twisted theology that says that once we place our faith in Jesus Christ, all things will go well. The reality is you just have a way to deal with stuff. It doesn't take away the stuff. In fact, it adds to the list a little bit because now you are being persecuted, whereas before you were running with the crowd. Some of the greatest disappointments in life come because of improper expectations. We have expectations of life, of marriage, of our job, of our children, of our church. We have expectations of God. We believe for some reason that peace and joy and pain are not compatible. Joy and pain? How are those compatible? We believe that a good God and Father would not allow His children to suffer. And if we do suffer, that for some reason, God's not pleased with us. We believe that our life has been, we look at our past and we see the, the great sin that we've lived in and wallowed in, and that the Lord in all justice should really just kind of look at our lives and flush, as opposed to giving grace. And he's given great grace in our lives, hasn't he? The reality is that there is a huge chasm that stretches between the God we want and the God who is. And the only thing that, that spans that chasm is the cross. It's not just the cross of Jesus Christ, but it's the cross that we carry in our daily lives. The span between the God we want and the God who is is, is brought together as we embrace the cross that God calls us to bear. I think it's amazing that the same Peter who wrote 1 Peter 4, verse 12, is the same Peter who told Jesus, when Jesus said, I'm going to go to the cross, Peter said, Lord, this will never happen to you. And here, some 30-plus years later, Peter writes, don't be surprised at the fiery ordeal that comes upon you for your testing. What transformed this man? What transformed Peter from a person who was following Jesus Christ simply to get from him as opposed to the, to the Peter here in 1 Peter who would ultimately ask to be crucified upside down because he wasn't worthy of dying the same way that Jesus died? What transformed Peter? reality. The cross spanned that great gap between the God Peter wanted and the God Peter had. It was the cross, first the cross of Christ and then the own, Peter's own cross in life. Peter had to deal with failure. He had to deal with heartbreak. He had to deal with bitter tears. God allowed Peter to experience reality, and it broadened his limited perspective. It's the same true of us. It wasn't that Peter's ambitions were wrong. Uh, Jesus did promise all of the apostles that they would rule on 12 thrones. This is correct. That was in Matthew 19, verse 28. But Peter's problem came with how those dreams were going to come about. The cross never figured into Peter's plans. And in reality, it doesn't figure into our plans either. I remember reading somewhere that Roger Staubach was asked um, – after he was injured, remember there toward the end of his career, he kept having all these injuries. 
and he was asked how he kept playing football uh, when he was injured. And Roger's reply was great. He said, if you're not playing hurt, you're not playing football. You know, I thought the same is true in the Christian life. If you have to have no pain to play, you're not in the game. The same is true in our lives. If we're going to live the Christian life, we have to learn to play hurt because there's no other way. There is no other way. So Peter makes sure, he begins by making sure our perspectives are correct. Don't be surprised, he says in verse 12. Underline that in your mind. Let that be bold in your mind. Do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal um, that, that comes upon you, as if it's strange, as though it's out of place, because they come, Peter says, for a purpose, for your testing, for your testing. It's the same word Peter used back in chapter 1. Flip back to chapter 1 and look at verse 6. Chapter 1, verse 6, Peter writes, In this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials, so that the proof of your faith, being more precious than gold which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. What he writes there in verses 6 and 7, he basically repeats in chapter 4, verse 12. It's the exact same idea. The word ordeal is the word for trials. See, the purpose of trials, Peter tells us, is that we may be refined, that we may be purified. I'm kind of on, a, I guess, a cowboy's trip here, but Tom Landry, if I can now quote my second favorite cowboy, Tom Landry said one time, he said, my task is to renew the minds of my players so that I can get them to do what they don't want to do in order for them to achieve what they want to achieve. Great insight. My task is to renew the mind of our players so that I can get them to do what they don't want to do in order to get them to achieve what they want to achieve. This is the task of the Holy Spirit in our lives, renewing our minds and getting us to do what we don't want to do initially, but it's through doing what we don't want to do that we become what we want to become. God doesn't allow us just to have pain for pain's sake. The pain has a purpose. The pain is this process of purification in our lives. The process of struggle yields the product of character. It's kind of like a, a parent when you take your child. Remember taking your child to the doctor and they had to get a shot. Not the doctor, but the child. And this is a painful because you know it's going to hurt, but you know that pain is essential for that child to heal. And so you will not only agree to the process, you'll hold your child down and allow this mean old doctor to plunge the syringe into the flesh of your child. Why? Because you know that that pain is going to contribute to their healing. Somehow in God's grand heavenly plan in our lives, he holds us down 
and he also administers the syringe, as it were, because he knows something that we don't. The child only understands the pain of the moment, like us. But God sees the big picture. So let's glean some correct expectations here. And if you'd like an application to jot down, here's a simple one. Difficult trials shouldn't surprise us because they, slow up, they show up to test us. Difficult trials shouldn't surprise us because they show up to test us. Fiery trials, Peter says. We're not talking about losing a parking place in front of Dillard's. These are the deep trials of life. Literally, Peter writes, the burning among you. It's a metaphorical use of trials. Um, interesting, though, it would also become very literal in the days that followed as Peter's very readers would be among those whom Nero would literally light on fire with pitch and use as living torches to light his royal gardens. Now, that's extreme, granted in our context, put in today's terms, though. How would you respond to the suffering of the innocent? Well, look at verse 13. Peter writes, okay, so verse 12, don't be surprised. Verse 13, but to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing, so that at the revelation of his glory, you may rejoice with exultation. See the contrast there? In your current situation, as you share the sufferings of Christ, Peter says, keep on rejoicing. So that, it's with a goal, so that when Jesus comes, that rejoicing that you have in trials will suddenly become rejoicing with exaltation. And notice also Peter says, we share the sufferings of Christ. The word share. We don't live them alone. Our pain allows us to identify with Jesus and that we get, to sh we get to suffer along with him. It draws us into closer intimacy with him. And rather than removing our suffering, rather than explaining the eternal significance of it as if we can understand it, God does something even better. He enters into the pain with us. This is something that Job had to learn only by going through the fire. You remember Job's big question was, and he kept saying it to his counselors, and ultimately he was saying it to the Lord, I don't understand why this is happening. I haven't done anything wrong, as it were, to, de to deserve this. And he goes through all the things that he's done to not deserve it. And interestingly, when, when God finally does speak up, he doesn't address Job's question of why. Why the Lord is allowing this great suffering in the life of a man who doesn't deserve it. Instead, God basically asks Job a bunch of questions that he can't answer and takes him to a level, basically to an understanding of uh, we're dealing with something on a level that you can't even comprehend. And rather than giving him an explanation God graciously gives him his presence, which is really what we need when we're struggling. We don't need to know why. Because honestly, if we, if, if we suffered a great tragedy and the Lord told us, here's why I allowed this to happen, eventually that wouldn't be good enough. 
because our pain would be still so overwhelming. But when God, when God enters into it with us, then we have a comfort in that situation. It's like what Paul talks about in 2 Corinthians 1, where we, receive, we are comforted in what we're suffering. And then we can turn around and comfort others with the comfort that we ourselves have received. There really is no other solution than the comfort of God. And interestingly also, the Lord Jesus entered into that suffering. He, uh, he entered the pain. Our suffering ultimately can't be meaningless because Jesus himself experienced it worse than any of us ever will. The actor Bruce Marciano, he portrayed Jesus in the video series Matthew. He said this, he said, I believe every Christian should hang on a cross for at least 30 seconds. Their lives will never be the same. <laughs> yeah. You imagine? Experiencing what Jesus experienced for even that brief time, we would never forget it. Peter tells us part of suffering is part of God's plan. I remember um, reading this um, story back in 1982. 60,000 diehard University of Wisconsin fans at Badger Stadium were watching their football team get creamed by Michigan State. And even though Wisconsin was losing, there were bursts of applause and shouts of joy among the Wisconsin fans, which seems really like it shouldn't have been happening. Until later, it was discovered that those Wisconsin fans had radios, and they were listening that 70, 70 miles away, the, the Milwaukee Brewers were beating the St. Louis Cardinals in Game 3 of the World Series. <laughs> so the fans were responding to something that was that was happening that was a greater victory as opposed to the loss that they were seeing right in front of them. That's kind of cheesy illustration, but my friends, this Bible is that radio, isn't it? This Bible gives us the insight of a victory that's much larger, larger than the loss that we feel that we're dealing with here and now. There is a victory that is, that is far bigger. Peter shows us another reason we can rejoice in the midst of our pain. Look at verse 14. He writes, If you are reviled for the name of Christ, you are blessed, because the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. I like this verse because it's very current with our culture. We live in an age that demands political correctness toward everybody but Christians. We'll give it to minorities, but we don't give it to Christians. And interestingly, Christians seem to be becoming more and more of a minority. It's fine to talk about God here, even, even still in the United States, because God is this, the term God is this empty bag that you can fill with whatever you'd like. To say, God bless America, don't you just sometimes want to ask, what God are we talking about? Because if we're talking about this God, he's not just the God of the Old Testament. There's another half of this book that starts with the J word. And now all of a sudden, when you say the J word, now all of a sudden it gets very divisive. It's so simple. It's so easy to say, 
God or God bless you or God bless America. But what would happen if somebody said, I pray that the Lord Jesus Christ blesses America? That would be explosive. Peter realizes that that's the case. Jesus is the stumbling stone. He is the rock of offense even today. Primarily because of the Bible's message that Jesus is the only way. Interesting. Have you noticed that we as Christians get a lot of bad rap for saying that Jesus is the only way? Do you realize that the whole Bible has always said that? Not necessarily Jesus. Jesus is just the final means by which this timeless truth has always been. But there's only, always been only one way to God, and that is the way that he provides. And ultimately, that comes through the sacrifice that he provides. And um, it's not just that we just come to God by any old way we want. Um, anyway, I could go on and on about this regarding and Christmas programs are sometimes the worst because the theology in Christmas programs just, I don't know, great, great stories, but, but boy, the theology just makes you go, well, is it okay if I enjoy that miracle on 34th Street? Can I really enjoy the It's a Wonderful Life movie and you, when all the theology is just sort of off? Well, anyway, I hadn't really planned to talk about that, but we could talk about that. But God is not this empty vessel that we can just lump into whatever we want. The God of the Bible is a God who has said from the very beginning, I am a holy God. I am absolutely perfect. And if you're going to have fellowship with me, you need to be holy like I am. Trouble is we're not. We, we make decisions that are wrong. And as a result, we need to come to God by the means that he's provided. In the Old Testament, that was uh, through the sacrificial system, or ultimately it comes through a sacrifice dying in your place. And the ultimate final sacrifice, of course, was Jesus Christ. Henry Nouwen says, perhaps the main task of the minister is to prevent people from suffering for the wrong reasons. Interesting perspective. Peter says a very similar thing in verse 15. He says, Make sure that none of you suffers as a murderer or a thief or evildoer or a troublesome meddler. But if anyone suffers as a Christian, he is not to be ashamed, but is to glorify God in this name. In other words, in the name of Christ. Notice the very practical response Peter says here for fiery trials. We should rejoice, he says. Make sure that none of you suffers as a murderer uh, or a thief or an evildoer. But if anyone suffers as a Christian, he is not to be ashamed, but is to glorify God in this name. A very practical response. We should consider ourselves blessed. And we consider ourselves blessed because also, the, uh, we're, we're told back in verse 14, because the spirit of glory and of God rests on us. Rather than focusing on simply the, the cause of our trials, realize that there is, a, there is a, a goal that is higher than us just being comfortable. That goal is glorifying the Lord. And because we have the name of Christ, 
He says, you have the spirit of God and the spirit of glory resting on you. Because you're a Christian, you have the Holy Spirit. It, it's a wonderful perspective to think if somebody slanders you because of the name of Jesus, realize, yeah, and because of Christ, I have the Holy Spirit within me. This is a personal realization. This is not necessarily what you would say right back at somebody. But it's, it's personal comfort that Peter is offering. The slander that you get because you're a Christian also comes with the comfort you get as a Christian by having the Holy Spirit within you. The Spirit of glory and of God rests on you. He says, if you're going to suffer, do it, the right, do it for a right reason. Don't suffer for sin, for murder, or for thief, or for being an evildoer, or a troublesome meddler, which is an interesting uh, paraphrase, if you look at the margin, is literally one who oversees others' affairs. <laughs> I like that. In other words, you're sticking your nose where it doesn't belong. But if you're going to suffer as a Christian, don't be ashamed, but glorify God in this name. So Peter gives a practical reason now in verse 17 as to why we should suffer only for faithfulness. He says, for it is time for judgment to begin with the household of God. And if it begins with us first, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if it is with difficulty that the righteous is saved, what will become of the godless man and the sinner? These verses a bit of a challenge, but we've got to keep them in context here. Um, Peter's telling us why a believer should suffer only for faithfulness and not for sin? The answer is because God judges sin. That's what he's saying in verse 17. It is time for judgment to begin with the household of God, and if it begins with us first, what will the outcome be for those who do not obey the gospel of God? In other words, the judgment spoken here for the household of God is not a judgment of heaven and hell, it, meaning it begins with us, but it is a judgment of discipline. Nobody sins with God's permission, not a, not a believer, not a Moses, not a David, not a Solomon, much less, Peter goes on to say, an unbeliever. This is Peter's point here in verse 17. If believers receive temporary discipline for sin, how much more will unbelievers receive eternal discipline for sin? God judges sin among believers with discipline. God judges sin among unbelievers with condemnation. Verse 18 says it in a, in a different way. And he quotes, really he paraphrases from Proverbs, the book of Proverbs, verse 11, I'm sorry, chapter 11, verse 31. And he's actually quoting the Septuagint, or the Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament, which it's interesting how the Septuagint sort of changes it I want to say it changes scripture, but it translates it. Of course, the Septuagint is a translation, and it translates from the original Hebrew a little differently than our English is translated from the original Hebrew. And if you look back at Proverbs eleven thirty-one, it's a little different than is quoted here in First Peter four eighteen. But the essence is basically the same. Peter quotes the Septuagint, a context in a context of recompense. And by the way, let me, let me give you a little sidebar here of something that is important. Peter is quoting a translation. Let's back up and say that a different way. The Spirit of God 
is inspiring Peter to quote a translation. And Peter's quotation of that translation is inerrant because it's in the original. That's important for us to realize as we read a Bible that's English. Now, I'm not saying that all of our English Bibles are inerrant. What I'm saying is it is possible for a translation to be the Word of God. Peter quotes a translation. The Spirit inspired him to. So when you read your Bible in English, you can have a great confidence that you're holding the Word of God. So Peter's point here in, in quoting the Septuagint is that even suffering is in part a discipline. It is a part of God's righteous plan. Um, I think it's in Hebrews chapter 12 that we're told to consider even discipline, even suffering, a discipline of God. But in verse 18, he says, if it's with difficulty that the righteous is saved. Again, keep it in context. The context is speaking of the difficulty of trials prior to heaven, not working to earn heaven. The word saved here is referring to the end product of our salvation, not to its beginning, but to its end. Not to its beginning, but to its conclusion or its ultimate purpose. If it's with difficulty that the righteous is ultimately saved, we could say it that way, then imagine how hard it's going to be for the ultimate destiny of the lost. The old Puritan Thomas Brooks wrote back in 1659, he wrote, God who is infinite in wisdom and matchless in goodness hath ordered our troubles, yea, many troubles, to come trooping in upon us on every side. As our mercies, so our crosses seldom come single. They usually come treading one upon the heels of another, like they are April showers. No sooner is one over, but another comes. It is mercy that every affliction is not an execution, every correction not a damnation. The more the afflictions, the more the heart is raised heavenward. You see, we need to have that perspective. And finally, Peter gives us an application here in the, the final verse of chapter 4. Verse 19, therefore, therefore those also who suffer according to the will of God shall entrust their souls to a faithful creator in doing what is right. Don't miss the word therefore. Therefore, in other words, in light of four truths that he's just given us, in light of, first, that fiery trials shouldn't surprise us, in light of, second, that we will greatly rejoice when we see Christ's glory, third, in light of the fact that we're blessed with the presence of the Holy Spirit within us, fourth, in light of the fact that God disciplines us when we don't do what's right, Peter says, in light of all this, let those who suffer according to the will of God, meaning for doing right, entrust their souls to God, entrust their souls to a faithful creator in doing what is right. Incidentally, this is the exact same word Jesus Christ used on the cross before he died. He said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. The word for commit is the exact same word that Peter writes here for entrust. 
those who suffer according to the will of God, entrust their souls. Jesus said, I commit my spirit. It's the exact same idea. In fact, turn back to chapter 2, and you'll see Peter is basically just repeating what he's already said. Chapter 2, verse 23, using of Jesus' death, he says, While being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. This is, we've, we've focused on this all throughout the book because it's such an essential part of how to make it through life. How do you make it? How do you do it? You keep entrusting yourself to a God who knows what's right. There's no other way. If you're looking for justice in this life, it may or may not happen. But ultimately, that's not what we're hanging on for. We're hanging on because we know that God who knows our hearts, He knows what's right. He knows the unfair thing that happened to you back in 1972 that has never been made right. God knows it. And you are entrusting yourself to a faithful Creator by continuing to do what's right. This is what Peter says in verse 19. Entrust your soul to a faithful Creator in doing what's right. Or, as he said back in chapter 2, verse 23, kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. How do we entrust our souls to a faithful creator? Well, here's the final application. When suffering for doing what's right, trust God by continuing to do what's right. Don't let suffering get you off the path of doing what's right. You stay on it. You stay focused on it, no matter what. Trusting our Lord. A lady named Pauline Hilton shared about a time when her parents were serving in the Salvation Army. You know, the uh, Santa Clauses that always ring the bells by the, uh, uh, the malls and stuff. Uh, get Connie to show you the video of her dancing in New York with the Salvation Army. That's, uh, that's worth seeing. But Pauline Hilton shared about the time when her parents were doing this out on a miserable December night, and there was nobody out. And they were doing this in front of a hospital, I believe, and no one else was around. And her dad said, quote, God didn't need people to be out listening. He only needs us to be faithful. So they stayed. And he rang his bell, and they sang some songs, and the father gave a real short message. And then they all scampered back inside where it was warm. A few weeks later, the dad was out there ringing the bell at another location, and somebody came up and said, hey, were you the guy that was ringing the bell over there by the hospital a couple of weeks ago? He said, yes. And he said, I want you to know, and this lady said, my father had been in a coma for six months. We were dreading the holidays since dad wasn't really with us. But then we heard the carols, and to our amazement, my father sat up and said, that's God's music. And with that, he died. And I read that story about the Salvation Army, about this faithful guy that just simply did what was right, and God used it. Simply did what was right, and God used it. So as you sit in front of the, uh, the Lord with eyes wide, and you feel that blast of air in your eyes, or the fiery trials that you're going through, realize that that happens for a purpose. The purpose isn't just pain. 
the purpose is to give him glory, or these four things that we mentioned, that you greatly rejoice when you see the glory of Christ. The fiery trials shouldn't be surprising to us, that we're blessed with the Spirit of God within us, and that the Lord promises that as children he'll discipline us when we don't do what's right. So we want to continue along that faithful road. Let's pray. Thank you, God, for Peter's life. We can read in the Gospels of this well-intentioned, bumbling fisherman who really had at his core a desire to both love and follow Jesus and at the same time to reign and to receive glory. And you humbled our brother Peter through his own self-assurance and denying Jesus, through the bitter tears that caused his repentance and ultimately to become the powerful leader we see in the book of Acts and that we read about here in these great epistles. You're doing the same work in our lives, Lord. And as we go through each day and lean upon you and trust you, we ask that you give us a perspective that is bigger than the fire right in front of us, that you give us a perspective that sees glory ahead, not our glory, but your glory and our contribution to your glory by being faithful and doing what is right even in the midst of our suffering and trials and confusion. Father, thanks for the Bible that gives us the facts beyond the facts, that gives us something to cling to as we desperately need truth that goes beyond the truth that seems so devastating. Thank you for the hope, and we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.